Amen. Amen. Okay. So 1 John 5, the, uh, the fifth and final little uh, attempt at reading this great little letter. Um, this might be the first time that you've spent much time in it, uh, but I've really enjoyed digging into it and preparing these talks. Uh, last time I spoke to us, it was 1 John 4, and included these wonderful couple of verses. I gave the little sort of gospel talk at the Marley Hill Nativity today, and I used these verses. They've just really... They've actually really moved me over the last few weeks. It's such an amazing summary, I think, of, of the gospel and Christmas. It said this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I just think that's the most amazing couple of verses I've been thinking a lot about over the last few weeks. Am I living through Jesus at the moment? Am I living through Jesus? Because that's why he came, so I could live through him, so we could. It's the Christmas story, the love of God made manifest among us when Jesus came. I've got a one-year-old and a five-year-old, and I sometimes find it easier to think about God as like a, a big thing out there and I find it really difficult to think of him as a little baby but that's literally what happened you know um, in my talk at Marley Hill today I said Jesus would have needed his nappy changed he would have had gone through teething he would have fallen over and grazed his knee he would have struggled to get out of bed as a 14 year old it's amazing it, it blows me away it just I find that so Incredible and difficult to understand, but that is what happened. Jesus came to earth to live amongst us. And that is what we need to build our lives on. Again, it feels like there's uncertainty and uh, you can almost sense like a, a bit of fear rising up around us again as we, as we deal with this new variant. And Jesus can never be shaken. Jesus can never be shaken. And we need to live through him. In John 10, 10, Jesus says he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Or other translations say, have it to the full. So when we live through him, we can experience abundance of life, fullness of life, a better life than you could ever have dreamed of without Jesus. The Greek word for abundantly means over and above, more than is necessary, supremely extraordinary. It's a great word. So the love of God was made manifest amongst us through the birth of Jesus so that we might live through him and therefore enjoy extraordinary and abundant life. So we turn to chapter five. Many years ago, I used to say, if you have a Bible, you could turn. I sort of stopped bothering because no one can turn their Bibles anymore. It's more of a flick. So uh, if, you, if you want to read it, you feel free. They will come up on the screen as well. Uh, so I'm going to start by reading verses 1 to 5 in chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, it's always important to remember that when this was written by John, he didn't write it with chapters or with verses. It was a letter. Uh, so sometimes it's easy to sort of see the chapters as standalone uh, bits, but it's all, it's all one bit. Interestingly enough, verses and chapters weren't added to the Bible until 1557. You might not have known that, but <laughs> anyway, this is a letter, and this is where the, the uh, sort of chapter 5 begins. So John leaps straight in, and again, he continues to push the themes that he's been pushing throughout this letter. And there's sort of three overarching hallmarks that he says should be true of Christians, or you could even call them birthmarks of, of Christians. And he says this, and there's a slide for it. One of them is the right belief. We should have the right belief. We should have the right love. And we should have the right behavior. The right belief, the right love, and the right behavior. Those are the hallmarks of Christians. And then at the start of chapter 5, he expands those three even further. So he says that we are to believe that Jesus is the Messiah in verse 1. That we have been born of God that we love the Father and his family, that we obey his commands, that we overcome the world, and that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He's packing it in, old John. <laughs> He's getting a lot in there. So this is what he starts to unpack for us. And so much of this comes down to the fact that John is telling us that as children of God, we should be like him. As children of God, we should be like him. We should reflect our heavenly Father in how we live, how we act. You may well have heard the phrase, you know, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, or the other way around. You'll people, you, you might hear people say, oh, they, he's got his dad's chin or something, or his mother's nose, you know. Uh, I've got a little photo actually here. Uh, on the left is, is a few years old now. Well, that was, that's my daughter, Layla. And on the right is me, taken at the same age. It's, it's a bit uncanny. Uh, we didn't brush the hair that way. That was literally just how her hair was. So it looks like we've sort of set that up. But um, thankfully for her sake, she looks a lot less like me now. But um, like father, like daughter, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. We talk a lot about how children reflect their parents. And we should be the same of God. We should reflect him. So if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you are then called a child of God. You are adopted into his family and then you begin to take on the family characteristics. You begin to be shaped increasingly into the person of Jesus. It's amazing. Suddenly your motives begin to change in life. You're not motivated by money or power or greed or gain or sex or work or popularity. We're motivated by love, justice, mercy, righteousness. We find that our emotions and our feelings begin to change. Our motives, we begin to value love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We should reflect God our Father as his children. Verse 1 begins by saying, everyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God. And John is reminding us again that true Christianity always has to come back to Jesus. It always has to come back to Jesus. It's about Jesus, it's for Jesus, it's through Jesus. So what we think about Jesus and what we believe about Jesus really, really matters. 
And John begins this chapter with the word everyone. Everyone. And that is so important. Because the invitation to believe in Jesus and live through him is open to everyone. Everyone. No one is discounted. No one is ruled out. There's no sin too great. No stain too deep to be expunged by the love of Jesus. And as a community, we need to take that to heart. Because it, it can sometimes be easy to almost subconsciously live lives that exclude certain people. Those that are different to us or lifestyles that we don't approve of. But the good news is for everyone. This Christmas, the love of Jesus is for everyone. And it's a really radical position to take in today's society. That openness to everyone, it's very radical. Because we live in a, a society that claims to be liberal. But in reality, the things we should and shouldn't believe are very much prescribed. Don't dare disagree with what we think about sexuality. Don't dare disagree with what we think about gender or morality. Otherwise, you get cancelled or ostracized. You can't, you can't put the wrong thing on social media. You know, we, we live in a liberal society that we're told exactly what we should and shouldn't think. But the church is a place where we say, everyone come. And hear the good news. Everyone is welcome. Is there anyone that you know that in your heart you may have just thought that they're beyond God's reach? Everyone is welcome to hear the gospel. For many years I was part of a charity called Lifelines who facilitate people on death row in America with getting a pen pal. And so I would exchange letters for many years with a, with a guy in South Carolina who was on death row. And it's, it sounds like a pretty sort of shocking thing to do. Uh, it was not something I used to sort of just bring up on the bus, you know, on the train. But, you know, it was just my conviction that Jesus would, would reach out to that person, no matter how uh, far down into evil they've fallen. The gospel is for everyone. And then next, after everyone, John says, everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And this speaks to us about a continuous action, an ongoing process. He doesn't say everyone who believed with a D at the end. He says everyone who believes. And so this tells us that every day, every week, every month, every year, we need to choose to continue to believe and trust in Jesus. Adrian Rogers says this, the assurance of my salvation comes not from the fact that I did trust Christ, but that I am trusting Christ for my salvation. And John says, what must we believe? We must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is not a, a belief in a doctrine or an opinion or a formula. It's belief in a person, a real person. I find it amazing that when Jesus died and then rose again he reappeared to the disciples and then he sort of tootled off he's still human he's, he didn't stop being human at that point he's still a, a man wherever he is I don't know where he is but he's still human and I find that amazing that he, he's the first fruits of the age to come the bible said the firstborn from the dead he's still a man he's a person he is the person we believe in not just an idea do you know Jesus as a person? Do you know Jesus as a person? Sometimes I, I, I think, especially when there's so much going on around us, 
it can become, our relationship with Jesus can become dry. Almost dead, maybe. But Jesus is a person, a living person. Romans 5, 1 to 5, which I love, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Wow. And there's that word through again. So in chapter 4 of 1 John, John told us, like I read out at the start, we can live through Jesus. And then here Paul tells us that we have peace with God also through Jesus. So much through Jesus. We live through him and we have peace through him. Everyone has this opportunity to believe in Jesus. How can we be certain, therefore, that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, in verses 6 to 12, John addresses this. You know, it's almost like he was inspired in some way when he wrote this book, this letter, sorry. So I'm going to read 6 to 12 to us now. This is who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Amazing. Whoever has the son has life. So how do we know that Jesus is the son of God? Well, John sort of lays out his case before us. Maybe it'd be a bit like he's sort of standing up in front of a jury and he's trying to make the case. So he says, firstly, we have the witness of Jesus' baptism. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the water. We have the witness of Jesus' baptism. Secondly, we have the witness of his crucifixion. This is what he means when he's referring to the blood. So baptism, crucifixion. Thirdly, he says, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. Then we have the witness of the Father, the witness of our conversion, and then the witness of eternal life. Case closed. (laughs) No. So what a list. So John, as a living, breathing human, witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus with his own eyes. He met the resurrected Jesus. And now writing this, when he wrote this letter, he was the last living apostle. And he's saying to us, there is an abundance of evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. So he's saying, whatever you decide to think about Jesus, evidence is not the problem. So we have the evidence of his baptism and crucifixion, and then we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And this makes up a threefold witness with the other two. And this is a bit like a sort of hyperlink. You know, if you get an email, the sort of blue writing you can click. This is a hyperlink back to Deuteronomy 19, 15, which says, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. All three are in agreement. Jesus is God. The next person John calls to the stand is the Father himself, God himself. The testimony of God is that Jesus is his son. So we've got the three witnesses that the Old Testament required. So how much more 
Should we believe what, what the Father says? Charles Spurgeon said this, God is to believe, believed if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows infallibly. Of his own son he knows as none else can. Of our condition before him he knows. Of the way to pardon us he knows. There is nothing in God that could lead him to err or make a mistake. It was the father's witness that Jesus was his son. Next, John says, we have the witness of our own conversion. So he's tying together our outward confession of Jesus here and that inner witness inside of us. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So we all have an internal witness inside of us through the Holy Spirit that we are children of God. That's the presence of God inside of you, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Don't let the lies of the enemy convince you of anything different. Spurgeon also said this, Christ saves those who trust him. I trust him and therefore I am saved. Jesus Christ suffered for the sins of his people. His people are known by their believing in him. I believe in him and therefore he died for my sins and my sins are blotted out. This is the summary of the transaction. God's testimony concerning his son is at first believed simply because God says so and for no other reason. And then there grows up in the soul other evidence not necessary to faith but very strengthening to it. Evidence which springs up in the soul as the result of faith and is the witness referred to in our text. He that believes has the witness in himself. So you are saved because God says if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. But inside of us, the Holy Spirit works to confirm, to grow, to nourish, to encourage. And we need to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit's work in us. And then lastly, in this little list, we have the witness of eternal life, life that never ends. Life free from death, that gift from God, and it is found in no one else other than Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. He is the way we should live our lives, now and forever. We live through him, as John says in chapter four. One of my uh, favorite authors is Eugene Peterson and in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which I can't recommend enough to you all, uh, says this. The Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we can walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord. Not a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare our blue ribbons and gold medals with those of others who have made it to the winner's circle. To suppose that or to expect that is to turn the nut the wrong way. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, 
drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same governments, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know that we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil. He guards our very life. Can I get a reserved amen to that? <laughs> Thank you. We are preserved by God, accompanied by God, ruled by God, guarded by God. This is life lived through Jesus. It's not a walk in a garden, as Eugene says. We, we, we work the same jobs as everyone else. We face the same stresses and struggles as everyone else. But we are living through Jesus. And then if we move forward to the end of the chapter, and this is the end of the, of, of the letter, it's no surprise that John, again, wraps up focusing on Jesus. He, again, he, he reaffirms the reality of the incarnation. We, he says, you know, we know the Son of God has come. And he tells us that Jesus will give us understanding so that we may know him. I want more understanding, Jesus. What a great prayer that is to pray when you go to bed tonight. Jesus, give me more understanding of who you are in my life what you have done for me. And then he says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then almost out of nowhere, he ends with this line, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And when you read it, it sort of seems to almost like jar a bit. It's a bit like if I send a text to my wife, Hannah, and then I forget to put something at the start, I just cram it in at the end or, you know, try and crowbar it in. It seems to sort of jar a bit. And I was thinking, well, why has he, he put that line in at the end? And as I was thinking about it, I just was drawn to the fact that John is saying to us that outside of Jesus, there are so many alternatives. There are so many alternatives that we can choose, choose to live through, that we can choose to place on the throne of our hearts. So John has poured his heart out to us, explaining why Jesus is God, why we need to be a people of love, but then says, in closing, we must be on guard for God's substitutes. Jesus' substitutes that creep in. You know, idolatry it's not really a word we use in common parlance, but essentially it's anything you love more than God, anything you pursue more than God. You know, idols claim to be true, but only God is true. Idols claim to give us life, but only Christ gives us life. A few months ago, I, I talked about how in, when Jesus meets the rich young ruler, and he says, how might I have eternal life? And he's basically ticked all the boxes. You know, Jesus doesn't accuse him of living an immoral life. 
He knows the Torah. But Jesus sees into his heart and he says, give away all you have. And we're told that the, 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 the young ruler leaves, you know. Uh, some of the translations sort of say sad. Uh, and it doesn't really do it justice because when you dig into it, the word used to describe how the rich young ruler feels is the same Greek word used to describe the pain Jesus felt in Gethsemane. So when Jesus sweated blood, facing death, facing separation from the Father, it uses the same word. And what we know from that is that this man viewed money in the same way that Jesus viewed God the Father. And separation from money for him was almost equivalent to separation from the Father. And John ends by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I'm going to invite the band to come up, if that's okay. And we're going to move into a little bit of response. And I feel like it will be just a great opportunity for us as we approach Christmas just to take a few minutes now and simply say to Jesus, we want you to be at the center of our lives again. We want you to be Lord of everything in my life, of my work, my family, my dreams, my hopes. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you know at the moment you're not living through Jesus. Maybe you're living in your own strength. Maybe you're living through the expectations of others. But God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And just as the band starts to play quietly... I want to do just a little exercise for us. So wherever you are, uh, you might want to close your eyes. You might want to put your hands out in front of you. Just do whatever helps you to engage with the Holy Spirit. You know, what we do physically makes, makes a difference. If you go to speak to someone and they're just sort of slouched in their chair with their head down, it doesn't feel like they're giving you their attention. Well, it's the same with God. We want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And what I would love us to do now, so as you close your eyes, <clears throat> I want you to picture the nativity, the nativity scene. You might now be thinking of Richardson Dees Park in Wall's End, but that's okay. Picture the nativity scene. And we have the people gathered, the shepherds who have come. We have Mary and Joseph three kings the animals and then in the center we have Jesus and as you begin to approach the king of kings who came as a baby just become aware of what your emotions are as you approach him how do you feel do you feel fearful, ashamed, joyful, confident? How do you feel about coming to Jesus? 
Are you sort of hiding at the back behind some of the animals? Are you taking a knee before him? Are you crying? And wherever you see yourself in that picture, just invite the Holy Spirit to meet you now, wherever you're at. Maybe you're not even in the building. Maybe you feel like you're outside. Maybe you feel at the moment just so close that you're next to the crib. Wherever you are, just invite the Holy Spirit to come. And Father, we pray that this Christmas you would be returned to the center of our lives, Jesus. Wherever you are now, wherever we feel in relation to you, Father, we pray you would draw closer in this moment. Come Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. We invite your presence here. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we speak against fear and we speak against shame that would seek to stop us drawing close to you. Father, you are not distant. You are not angry with us. You love us. And we draw into your presence now, Father. And we welcome you here.